Dalton. So, Dalton, good to have you here today, too. And they came up from Panama City on Thursday. It was Thursday? Well, late, late Wednesday, early Thursday morning. And uh, been able to spend a few days with them, and it's been a joy to have them here. And uh, looking forward to a great time with them. They're leaving out tomorrow morning, so pray for traveling mercies there. And God will give them blessing on the way back and to keep them safe. Let's take our Bibles this morning, if you will. Turn to the book of Gospel of John, chapter number 3. Gospel of John, chapter number 3. And uh, we're going to deal with a subject this morning um, that we had actually talked about in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago. And then last week I was planning on uh, uh, preaching on this. And uh, lo and behold, the weather didn't cooperate. So, uh, so we're ready today with it, all right? John chapter number 3. And let's begin in verse number 16, a very familiar verse, and we're going to read down through verse number 18. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we pray that you'll bless the message this morning and speak to hearts, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will do His work. Father, the matter that we're going to be dealing with this morning is a matter of eternal, eternal importance, and I pray that you would help us to give it its due diligence, that we would listen with our hearts and our minds engaged. Father, I pray that at the onset you would allow us to make the choice and the decision that whatever you will show us in your Word, we will already agree to walk by it and to follow after it. I pray that your Holy Spirit will have free reign to do as he sees fit, that our hearts will be yielded and sensitive to his leading. And then, Father, that he will speak to hearts inwardly as we preach outwardly. Father, I pray that you would help us to glorify you and honor you in everything that we do today in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've read a passage of Scripture this morning that many times is uh, it does not hold the meaning to us that it should because of our familiarity with this. You ever notice the more familiar we get to things sometimes, the, the, the less likely we are to be stirred by the truth of it. You ever been there before? Uh, I was raised in a pastor's home, and I remember sitting in the pews as a young man and uh, looking at my watch and thinking, when is this going to be over? I had been in so many services and so many messages that uh, the the... Uh, the fact that I was just there all the time seemed to uh, drone on and on in my heart and in my mind. And when God saved me when I was 13 years old and I trusted Him as my Savior, there became something different inside. And I, I had a hunger and I had a thirst for the things of the Lord that, that wasn't there before. And it wasn't something artificial and it wasn't something temporary. And I'm not saying that I've always had a, a life that was constantly on fire for God and never had times where I felt down spiritually because obviously there are times we have ups and downs in the Christian life. But I can honestly say this, that since 1983, God has put in my heart at least a, a burning desire for the things of His. And there's been times I've gotten away from some things and been maybe cold and callous to some things. But it has always been that underlying yearning and desire for the things of the Lord. When we come to truths like this, it's very simple and easy for us after hearing it for many, many years or many, many times to kind of gloss over it 
and we lose the supernatural idea behind what it's saying. So we find in verse number 16, For God so loved the world, and we could have stopped right there, and that would have been an amazing statement, wouldn't it? That God would bother to concern Himself with the affairs of men is something I can never understand. I'm grateful for it, I'm thankful for it, but until I get to heaven, and I'm not even as positive when I get to heaven, I'll understand it. Why God would bother with me, and why He would bother with you. But God so loved the world, the Bible says, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In verse number 17, He says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What's he saying here? He's saying that Christ didn't come to bring the judgment. Christ came to bring the salvation. The judgment had already been passed all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The day ye eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. And, of course, Adam and Eve ate. And Romans tells us, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And that judgment was made all the way back there in the Garden of Eden. And Christ didn't come to judge. And and, and that's one of the things that I believe we as Christians, if we're not careful, we come out and when we're trying to share the gospel with somebody, we approach it from the negative side of things. And I understand that they need to realize they're a sinner. And I understand that they need to realize they're lost and there's nothing they can do to save themselves. But we need to bring the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be able to bring with great zeal and excitement to them the best news they've ever heard, that while they are a sinner and while they cannot save themselves, Christ died for them. He didn't come to condemn us, but that the world through Him might be saved, the Bible says. He didn't come to to send us to hell. He came to take us to heaven. We find in verse number 18, He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. You don't have to do anything to go to hell. You just simply don't believe in Him. But then we do trust Him and we get the opportunity to go to heaven. What an amazing thought. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I want to think this morning a little bit on this topic. We're going to be turning to the book of Hebrews here in just a moment. But the idea being, we all understand the the issue of salvation. And I want us to focus in and think about this word of grace this morning for a moment. Because grace is getting that which we did not deserve. Can I tell you this? The greatest movement of grace that was given to mankind was God's mercy. We did not deserve God's mercy. And yet He gave it to us freely and willingly if we'll simply put our faith and trust in Him. And He does not attach works to it. Aren't you glad of that? Man, I'm glad that I do not have to do something to earn my salvation. If I, had to, if I had to be the best I could all the time, then I would fail. Because the Bible says that my righteousness, the best that I can do, my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That, that's, how could I come to an Almighty God and lay a bunch of filthy rags at His feet and say, because of this you owe me heaven? That wouldn't work. (laughs) I have to come and say, God, I can't. There's nothing I have in and of myself to be saved. There's nothing I can do to earn your mercy. So I'm asking you for your grace to give me your mercy undeserved. 
I'm putting my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His shed blood on Calvary as my only hope of eternal security. And we all understand the concept of salvation, but so many times we begin to doubt and question some things about whether we continue to stay saved. One of the big things that goes on, I think, a lot of times in the day that we live is this thing of eternal security. And are we saved forever or are we just saved till we sin again? And the Bible does address this topic in the book of Hebrews. If you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 7. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture and then we're going to pull in the, uh, the conclusion of the matter. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter number 7, because God deals very clearly with this. Understand that the Old Testament was given to us for the purpose of illustrating things that happened in the New Testament, or principles that are more clearly depicted and given in the New Testament many times. And the Old Testament, many of the Old Testament practices of uh, the temple and sacrifices and all of that were served at, or were used as a picture of the things that would come. Uh, they were a shadow of things that were in existence in heaven and uh, things that were to be done for the redemption of mankind. But notice that in the Old Testament, the process of bringing sacrifices to the temple and the priest purifying themselves and bringing the blood of the goat or the offering into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling on the mercy seat, that physical act here on this earth was not the, not the thing that was going to save mankind. It was simply a foreshadowing and a symbol of what was going to happen with the perfect sacrifice, which would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you will, in chapter number 7 for a few moments, and uh, dealing with Christ being the priest for us and our high priest. And we're going to begin reading, uh, let's start in verse number 12. For the priesthood bring, uh, being changed, there is a, made a necessity of change also of the law, for he of whom these things were spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance to the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. So understand this, that the priesthood in the Old Testament was to be of the line of Levi, and uh, was, uh, they were to be born into these positions. Christ did not have that, that uh, being born, according to the book of Hebrews, uh, to be the priest. And the Bible says this, that he became a priest after the order of an Old Testament figure called Melchizedek, who was not of that line, but was uh, simply a priest, according to the Scripture here, a priest because he, uh, he uh, endured forever. He has an endless life. And this is the claim that he has for priesthood. The fact that he's not a temporary priest. Understand that uh, sacrifices had to be made yearly for the atonement of sins. That the high priest would enter once into the Holy of Holies a year. He would enter in once a year for the atonement of his own sin and for the sins of the people. Because this priest was going to die at some point, he was not an everlasting priest and could never bring eternal salvation to the man or eternal atonement for men. We find here as we get down to verse number, uh, let's go down to verse number 18 of chapter 7. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness of the unprofitableness thereof, for the law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. 
For those priests were made without an oath. But this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. The Bible is broken into two halves. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament was brought when Christ died on Calvary. And the sealing of that testament was done by His own death and His own blood. I'm not going to go into all the details of how to perform what was known in the Old Testament as covenant, but we practice a lot of it today in our marriage ceremonies. A lot of the, uh, the walk of the procession coming in was part of the covenant, the, the walk that was made for a covenant. The joining of the hands was part of, marked by the Old Testament practice of making covenant, the saying of vows to one another. The fact that there's a reception afterwards and uh, they exchange names and they exchange possessions. Um, you know, the old adage that when you get married, uh, uh, men, you guys know that what's yours is hers and what's hers is hers. I mean, what's hers is yours. Uh, we think it's what's hers is hers. You exchange possessions. She takes your name. There's a difference in names given. Um, and then you have the, uh, the reception following. Usually there's some kind of refreshments there. And then there's a tradition of the bride and groom feeding cake to each other and uh, giving each other to drink. Uh, and those are all things that were pictures that Christ even, that God has set up all the way back thousands of years ago in the Old Testament. We practice them slightly different, but they're still holdovers from the Old Testament covenant. The idea being that when the covenant was made, you were guaranteeing and securing that covenant with your own, your own life. In other words, you were saying we're entering into this agreement saying that if I break covenant, may what happened to the sacrifice that we have made here happen to me if I break covenant. Covenant was a lot more than just a promise. By the way, when the, uh, white people came to America and the Europeans came to America, and the Native American Indians would make compacts with them, what they would call blood brothers, and they would smoke the peace pipes and give gifts to each other. Those were all things that were left over from Old Testament covenant. They understood covenant. And to the Native American Indian, those things were not ever to be broken, even to the point of death. Uh, Europeans had long forgotten what covenant was about. But there was a guarantee of the covenant, and the guarantee was your own life. What Christ understood, what God understood, is that man, being imperfect and a sinful creature, could never keep covenant with God Himself. God could keep His side of the bargain, but the truth of the matter is you and I could never keep our part of the bargain. And so if that was the case, then we would surely have to die for our breaking of the covenant. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says that when Christ came, He becomes, look with me in verse number 22, He becomes the surety of a better covenant. What is that? Well, a couple of years ago, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Alyssa, sitting back here, wanted to go buy a car. And she didn't have enough, well, she had credit, but she had never had a loan before, and they were hesitant to give her loan on a car, being young and not having enough credit and things. And so they asked me to be the co-signer on that loan. And when I co-signed on that loan, what I was telling them was, if my daughter decides that she cannot keep her end of the bargain, then you may put that on my account, and I'll make sure that it's taken care of. Understand this, that when the New Testament was made, the covenant between God and man, that man could not have kept covenant, and so the guarantor, the guarantee, the surety, the Bible uses the word here, for this new covenant is not my soul, not my life, 
but the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He now is the surety. My salvation to be saved was not dependent upon me. My salvation was dependent upon Him and what He had done on Calvary. By the way, my continuing to be saved is no more dependent upon me than my original salvation was. It's dependent upon Him. He's the guarantor. If I renege on the, if I renege on the covenant, if I sin after I'm saved, Jesus has already been the surety. He's already been the co-signer of it and said, you know what, Lord, God, Father, put that on my account. I've already paid for it at Calvary. I'm guaranteed. Now, I want us to understand this because some people who don't understand this concept think, well, that can't make any sense. If that's the case, then I can go out here and I can live however I want to live. And what, where's, the, where's the benefit of being saved? The Bible says in Romans chapter number 6, Paul was addressing that exact thing. In fact, hold your place here in Hebrews 7. We're going to come right back to it. But look with me. Let's look at Romans chapter 6 for a minute because I want you to see this. I'm actually going to back up just a little bit to verse number uh, 19 of uh, chapter number 5, and we're going to lead into chapter number 6. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Who's that speaking about? One man's disobedience many were made sinners. Who's that speaking about? That's speaking about Adam, okay? One man's sin entered into the world. Everybody understand that? Verse number 19, chapter number 5. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Who's that speaking of? Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Is there ever a time that we can sin more than God's grace? No. God's grace much more abounds. What grace? What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. I did not earn it. Right? What was the greatest mark of grace that we have? His mercy. Do any of us sitting here today think that we deserve God's mercy? No. God gave it to us by His grace. Now look what it says here, verse number 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, that we could see every sin there was, and every sin would have an accounting to give of it. So, uh, uh, but where sin abounded, grace did, what are the next two words? Much more. Does that mean that God gives as much mercy as is needed to cover our sin? Over and over and over again. By the way, can I, can I help you with something? When Christ died on Calvary and gave His mercy, all of our sins were future. He looked down through, his, through the future and saw us and said, My mercy's already given. And no matter how much sin that person has, my grace to give that mercy is much more than that. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's, Paul's trying to, to cut off here real quickly the thought then. Because the, the natural thought by man, since our old nature is there, wants to say, well then, hey, if God's grace is there, and I can go out and live however I want and sin however I want and know that His mercy has been given to me, then why don't I just go do that? 
Look what he says. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? Newness of life. Because his mercy has been given, because when we were saved he quickened us and made us alive inside something that used to be dead, the new man, the spirit of the Holy Ghost coming and living inside of us. Because of that, we then live in newness of life. Now let's go back to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 7, because Christ is the surety. He's the guarantor for my salvation. He's the guarantor for my eternal security. Not just one time. You say, Brother Greg, are you sure about that? Well, let's take a look and make sure we're, we're saying this right. Verse number 23, chapter number 7. And there truly were... Well, that was rough. My voice cracked there. Let's try that again. And there they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. So every priest that ever brought atonement to the old tabernacle and then later on the temple to the mercy seat, by reason of death they were no longer priests. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. He is, well, could we say it this way? He has an everlasting priesthood. He does not, he, he's still alive, amen? At the right hand of the Father. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the what? Uttermost. Fully. Completely. He's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now he's combining here in one, one statement the fact that he has, that Christ because of his eternality, the fact that he lives eternally, that he is our priest and that he, uh, the Bible says here, wherefore he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth. Why would he talk about him ever living and ever making intercession for us? Because we are forever saved. The fact that we sin does not cause us to lose our salvation. The fact that we sin means that He is interceding on our behalf. And He keeps us saved. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sin and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law, making men high priest, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, speaking of Christ, who is consecrated forevermore. Now, if you will, we're not going to read all of chapter number 8. I promise you we're not taking it out of context, but for sake of time today, let's look over, if you will, to verse number 6 of chapter number 8. You know, let's just read it. It's six verses. We'll do it. Verse number 1, chapter number 8. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. In other words, we're going to sum it all up here. We have such an high priest who is set at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Well, that's an interesting statement. You ought to underline that because we're going to talk about that. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices 
Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the, under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he ordained a much more excellent ministry, a more excellent ministry, excuse me, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So follow me for a minute. Moses was given instruction to build a tabernacle in the wilderness. Very specific. In fact, Christ even tells them here in, in Hebrews, we find that he gave very specific instructions to Moses to only build it according to what he had shown him. And that it was only a shadow of what was already built. And he makes this reference in verse number 2 and verse number 3 that the Lord was the one who built this tabernacle and not man. So there's a tabernacle in heaven. There's the, the process of going through all of the Old Testament rituals. Those same things are in heaven. They're built by God's hands and not by man's hands. And then um, uh, let's move down now to verse number 9, or chapter number 9. And uh, let's look in verse number 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So again, speaking of the tabernacle that's in heaven that God has made. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his what? His own blood. He entered in how often? Once. This is important. Now watch this for a minute. Stay right with me. I know right now there's a lot of information, but stay with me here. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year and gave atonement for the sins of the people. Twelve months would go by, and in that twelve months, there would be more sin that the people would commit. And because it was a human priest and a human sacrifice and an earthly sacrifice, the next year that high priest had to come in again and purify himself for his own sin and the sins of others. And we read that in chapter number 7. But notice what is said here in verse number 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now notice this. God does not send Jesus to the mercy seat in heaven once a year, once a month, once a week, once a day, and some of us once or multiple times an hour every time we sin. It was done once and gave eternal redemption. That was something the human priest could never do. Only Christ could offer eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls, verse number 13, if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. So not only is he our surety and the guarantor of it, but he's the one who goes before God when the great accuser comes to the Father and says, hey, Greg's down there sinning again. Christ is my mediator. And he stands between me and God. And every time I sin, he says, that's already been paid. 
Greg is trusting me, and I've paid it once and for all on Calvary. And he's ever living to make intercession for you and I. Amen? Aren't we glad of this this morning? If, if I had to keep my salvation, I would never know when I need to bow down and pray and ask Him to save me again. Because the Bible speaks that there are even sins of ignorance. There are sometimes we sin and we don't even realize we sinned. Verse number 16, for where... Uh, let's, I'm sorry, let's move down to verse 23 of chapter 9. It was necessary, therefore, that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these. Uh, I'm sorry, let's back up a minute. Uh, back up to verse uh, 21. I'm sorry, verse 21. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with, much, or with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now we find that there was a time period between the time that Jesus rose from the dead and the time that Jesus met with his disciples that he could not be touched. You remember when Mary saw him in the garden and she finally recognized him he said, Do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. When the atonement sacrifice was made in the Old Testament, the priest had to first cleanse himself. Once he was cleansed and made the sacrifice and had the blood, he could not be touched and could not be defiled prior to entering into the Holy of Holies and where the mercy seat was and sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. If he went in there unpure or unclean, he was killed on the spot. And notice here that the Bible speaks of the fact that Christ enters into the holy place, not made with hands, which are figures of the true, but in heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. He takes his own blood and sprinkles it on the mercy seat. And he does this between the time that he rose from the dead and the time that he met with his disciples. You say, Brother Greg, how do you know that it happened during that time? Because Mary could not touch him. But the disciples could. Remember when he met with them in the upper room? The Bible says that they handled him. Later on he meets again, and Thomas is there this time. And he tells him, put your hands in the holes of my, uh, the, prince of the nails in my hands and in my side. He was able to be touched and handled again. So he being the high priest and the surety for the New Testament takes his own blood once for all, does not have to continue to sprinkle it, does not have to go in every year for the atonement of man. He's done it once for all. It's been covered. When we put our trust in Him, it's for eternal salvation. Now look what it says here in verse number 20. Uh, let's go to verse number 25. Now yet that He should offer Himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must He often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die... But after this, the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Man, I'm glad of that. You know, the truth of the matter is, if I sat down and tried to 
think through, I could think of sins that I did yesterday. I could probably think of some I did even this morning, getting ready. I got a little exasperated and impatient with my kids a little bit this morning. Probably got a little bit sinful in some of that. And I am so thankful that when God looks at me, He does not see my sin. He sees the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a whole other principle that deals with our relationship to God. And sin will certainly quench the Holy Spirit. And sin will certainly hinder our relationship with God. But I am so thankful that I am constantly going to be His child from this point on. From the time that I got saved, I belonged to Him. There are times my kids aggravate me to death. I used to have a full head of hair. There are times they aggravate me to death. There are times I wish I'd had dogs, Brother Harold. But you know what? They're still my kids. And it strains our relationship sometimes, the way they act, or maybe sometimes the way I act. But they're still my kids, and I'm still their father. That doesn't change. What changes is my fellowship with them. Can I tell you this? When we trust Christ as our Savior, the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. To them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Think of all these things that God has given to us. That we're joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God. And we are no longer alone, but we are His child. Now, my fellowship with Him may become quenched with my sin. But I am thankful that I am secure forever. Why? Because Christ did it once. And He's not dead. He's still living. And He stands there every day and makes intercession for me on my behalf. And His atonement gives me eternal salvation. Look with me in verse number, or chapter number 10. We'll go over to verse number 20. And again, I wish I had time to go through all of these chapters. Let's back up verse number 18. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. That is the key statement here. My salvation is not dependent upon my faithfulness to Him. My salvation is dependent upon His faithfulness to do as He said. For He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Don't let Satan throw doubt into your mind. If there's been a time that you can look back on and say, that was the time that I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not my works, 
I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. I trusted Him as my Savior. And my friend, can I tell you this? Just as I did not depend upon me to save me, neither do I depend upon me to keep me saved. That was all done by Christ. And it was done forevermore. One time, once and for all, you can rest in the assurance of your salvation. I've heard people get up and preach messages and the whole purpose of the message was to try to get Christians to doubt whether they were saved or not. If you're not saved, I certainly don't want to give you a false sense of security. There's one requirement to be saved and that is to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust Him and to take Him at His word. And if that's not happened, then you're not saved. And you need to get that settled. But I'm going to tell you this. If you've done that, there need never be doubt. We can rest upon the rock of God's Word that is unchanging and realize that Jesus Christ is the surety for me. And He's the surety for you. What happens if Alyssa misses that car payment? They don't call her. Well, they might call her first. But if they can't get paid, they're calling me. And I'm, my, my things are at risk. Just the same, if I don't keep covenant with God, if I sin, God doesn't come after me. God goes to His Son and His Son says, Father, that's already been paid for. Already been paid for. Put that on my account. Aren't you glad to be saved this morning? Aren't you glad to be eternally secure this morning? Amen. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. Father, we're so thankful for your word. I pray that you'll bless it. Lord, it's been a lot of verses. and We've gone through them trying to be as clear as we could about the fact that you are the guarantor, you're the surety, you're the one that is the enforcement of the New Testament, the New Covenant that God has made with us to give us His grace and His mercy. Lord, I pray that You'd help us to hold to that, that the message this morning would be twofold. First of all, that if we're not saved, if there's been a time, not been a time that we have trusted You as our Savior, that we quit putting our faith in what we do and lean wholly upon You for our salvation. Lord, if there's never been that time, then I pray that today would be the day that we would say, you know what, I've tried to save myself, I've tried to earn my salvation, I'm no longer trusting that, Lord, I'm trusting you today. Lord, I pray that that would happen. If there's anybody in this room that does not know you as Savior, they've not taken that time to place their trust in you and believe you for what you've said you would do, I pray that would take place today. Lord, for those that have, those that have marked their lives by the fact that they've trusted you as their Savior, that have been raised to walk in newness of life, that strive for a walk in a relationship with you, then, Father, I pray that you would help to strengthen our faith, to seal it into our hearts, to know that we are eternally secure. And, Father, not that it gives us license to sin. Heaven forbid that we should do this. 
As Paul said, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Lord, may we be delivered from this body of sin. In the old nature, may your Holy Spirit be given free course to allow us to walk in newness of life. That we would be yielded in following after his leading. Bless the invitation. And Lord, there may be some folks here today that need to come and get saved. They need to trust you as their Savior. And looking back in their life, they don't think of a time that they put their faith and their trust in you. Oh, they may have known about you. They may have gone to church. They may have lived a good life. But Father, those are all things that we try to do. There's never been a time that we've trusted you as our Savior. I pray that we would do that today. And then, Father, for those that are Christians that maybe have struggled with this in the past, perhaps have been shaken in their faith and wondering whether or not they are remaining saved in their life, I pray that you would help us to come this morning and say, Lord, I just take you at your word. I believe that you have eternally secured me. Lord, I pray that you'd bless the invitation and use it as you would see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.